Chapter Thirty Four of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Will of the Mob. Parsons had always been an unemotional man, his own character being immune to the little twingling impulses of humanness that grow to generous and unselfish deeds. He had looked with derision upon all persons who betrayed concern for their fellow men, and so Parsons had lived apart from his fellows. He had watched them from across the gulf of disinterest, where emotion was foreign. But tonight Parsons was learning what emotion is, not from others, but from himself. Emotions, thousands of them, seethed in his brain and heart. He was in an advanced state of hysteria when he rode down the Dawes Trail with Marion Harlan, for there was the huge, implacable, ruthless, murderous Carrington, whom he had just passed on the trail, to menace his very life, and he knew that just as soon as Carrington returned to the big house and found Marion gone and the guard dead, he would ride back to Dawes seeking vengeance and Carrington would know it was Parsons who had robbed him of the girl, for Carrington would inquire and would discover that he had ridden into town with Marion. And when Parsons and Marion rode into Dawes, fear, stark, abject, and naked, was in the man's soul. Dawes was aflame with light as the two passed down the street, and Parsons left the girl to sit on her horse in front of a darkened store while he rode down the street, peering into other stores alight and inviting. He hardly knew what he did want. He knew, however, that there was little time, for at any minute now Carrington might come thundering into town on his errand of vengeance, and whatever Parsons did must be done quickly. He chose the second store he came to. He thought the place was a billiard room, until he entered and stood just inside the door, blinking at the lights, and then he knew it was a saloon, for he saw the bar, the back bar behind it, littered with bottles and many tables scattered around. More, there were perhaps a hundred men in the place, some of them drinking, and at the sight of them all, realizing the mightiness of their number, Parsons raised his hands aloft and screamed frenziedly, "'Men, there's been a crime committed tonight. At the Huggins house. Carrington did it. He abducted my niece. I want you men to help me. Carrington is going to kill me, and I want you to protect my niece.' For an instant, after Parsons' voice died in a breathless gasp, for he blurted his story, the words coming in a stream with hardly a pause between them, there was an odd, strained silence. Then, a man far back in the room guffawed loudly. Plum local, too much forty-rod. There was a half-hearted gale of laughter at the man's talk, and then many men were around Parsons, ready to laugh and jeer. And while some of the men peered at Parsons, cynically, inspecting him for signs of drunkenness, Several others ran to the open door and looked out into the street. 
"'There's something in his yapping, boys,' stated a man who returned from the door. "'There's a gal out here, sure enough, sitting on a horse, waiting.' There was a concerted rush outside to see the girl, and Parsons was shoved and jostled until he, too, was forced to go out. And by the time Parsons reached Marion's side, she had been questioned by the men, and wrathful curses arose from the lips of the men around her. "'Didn't I know he was that kind of a skunk?' shouted a man near Parsons. "'I knowed it as soon as he beat Taylor out of the election.' "'I'm for stringing the scum up,' yelled another man. "'This town can get along without guys that go around abducting women.' There were still other lurid and threatening comments, and many profane epithets rose, burdened with menace for Carrington. But the girl, humiliated, weak, and trembling, did not hear all of them. She saw other men emerging from doorways, all of them running toward her to join those who had come out of the saloon. And then she saw a woman coming toward her, the men making a pathway for her a motherly-looking woman who, when she came near the girl, smiled up at her sympathetically and reached up her hands to help the girl out of the saddle. Marion slipped down, and the woman's arms went around her, and with many grimly pitying glances from the men in the crowd about her, which parted to permit her to pass, she was led into a private dwelling at a little distance down the street in a cozy room where there were signs of decency and refinement. The woman placed the girl in a chair and stood beside her, smoothing her hair and talking to her in low, comforting tones, while outside a clamor rose and a confused mutter of many voices out of which she began to catch sentences such as, Let's fan it to the big house and get em. "'There's too many crooks in this town. Let's run em out.' "'What in hell did he come here for?' "'Judge Littlefield is just as bad. He cheated Taylor out of the election.' "'That's right,' answered another voice. "'Taylor's our man.' "'They are all wrought up over this, my dear,' said the woman. For a long time there had been an undercurrent of dissatisfaction over the way, over the way they cheated Quinton Taylor.' out of the mayorality. I don't think it was a bit fair, and, she continued, there are other things. They have found out that Carrington is behind a scheme to steal the water rights from the town, something he did to the board of directors of the irrigation company, I believe. And he has had his councilmen pass laws to widen some streets and open new ones. And the well-informed call it a steal, too. Mr. Norton has stirred up a lot of sentiment against Carrington and Danforth, and all the rest of them. Secretly, that is. And there is that murder charge against Quinton Taylor, went on the woman. That is preposterous. Taylor was the best friend Larry Harlan ever had. But the girl turned her head and her lips quivered. For the mention of Taylor had brought back to her the poignant sense of loss that she had felt when she had learned of the charge against Taylor. She bowed her head and wept silently. 
the woman trying again to comfort her, while outside the noise and tumult grew in volume, threatening violence. By the time Marion Harlan had dropped into the chair in the room of the house into which the woman had taken her, the crowd that had collected in the street was packed and jammed against the buildings on each side of it. Those who had come late demanded to be told what had happened, and some of the men lifted Parson to the back of his horse, and with their hands on his legs bracing him, Parsons repeated the story of what had occurred. More, yielding to the frenzy that had now taken possession of his senses, he told of Carrington's plotting against the town, of the man's determination to loot and steal everything he could get his hands on. He told them of his own culpability and assured them that he had been as guilty as Carrington and Danforth, who was a mere tool, though as unscrupulous as Carrington. He gave them an account of Carrington's stewardship of his own money, and he related the story of Carrington's friendship with the governor, connecting Carrington's trip to the capital with the stealing of the election from Taylor. It is the psychology of the mob that it responds in some measure to the frenzy of the man who agitates it. So it was with the great crowd that now swarmed the wide street of Dawes. Partisan feeling, all difference of opinion, that in other times would have barred concerted action, was swept away by the fervent appeal Parsons made, and by his complete and scathing revelation of the iniquitous scheme to rob the town. A great sigh arose as Parsons finished and was drawn down, his hat off, his hair ruffled, his eyes gleaming with the strength of the terrible frenzy he was laboring under. The crowd muttered, voices rose sharply. There was an impatient movement, a concerted stiffening of bodies and a long pause, as of preparation. Aroused, seething with passion, with a vindictive desire for action swift and ruthless, the crowd waited, waited for a leader. And while the pause and the mutterings continued, the leader came. It was the big, grim-faced Bothwell, at the head of the Arrow outfit, with his horse in a dead run. The other horses of the outfit crowding him close. Bothwell brought his horse to a sliding halt at the edge of the crowd. Bothwell's eyes were ablaze with the light of battle, and he stood in his stirrups, looming high above the heads of the men around him, and shouted, "'Where's my boss, Quint Taylor?' And before anyone could answer, "'Where's that damned coyote Carrington? "'Where's Danforth? What's wrong here?' It was Parsons who answered him, Parsons again clambering into the saddle from which he had spoken, now shrieking shrilly. "'It's Carrington's work.' He abducted Marion Harlan, my niece. He's a scoundrel and a thief, and he's trying to ruin this town. There was a short silence as Parsons slid again to the ground, and then a man growled profanely. Let's run the whole bunch out of town. Start something, Bothwell. Bothwell laughed, a booming bellow of grim mirth that stirred the crowd to movement. We've been starting something. This outfit is out for a clean-up. 
There's been too much sneaking and murdering and too many fake warrants flying around with a bunch like them Keats guys sent out to kill innocent men. Damn their hides. Let's get em, all of em. He flung his horse round and leaped it between the other horses of the Arrow outfit, sending it straight to the doors of the city hall. Closing in behind him, the other members of the Arrow outfit followed, and behind them the crowd, now able to center its passions upon something definite, rushed forward, a yelling, muttering, turbulent mass of men, intent to destroy the things which the common conscience loathes. It seemed a lashing sea of retribution to Danforth and Judge Littlefield, who were in the mayor's office, a little group of their political adherents around them. At the first sign of a disturbance, Danforth had attempted to gather his official forces with the intention of preserving order. But only those few had responded, and they, white-faced, feeling their utter impotence, were standing in the room terror-stricken. When Bothwell and the men of the Arrow outfit, with the crowd yelling behind them, entered the door of the office. The little, broken-nosed man had done well to leave the vicinity of the big house before Taylor arrived there. For when Taylor emerged from the front room in which the light still burned, his soul was still in the grip of lust to slay. He was breathing fast when he emerged from the house, for what he saw there had puzzled him. The guard lying on the floor and Marion gone. And he stood for an instant on the porch, scanning the clearing and the woods around the house with blazing eyes, his guns in his hand. The silence around the house was deep and solemn now, and over Taylor stole a conviction that Carrington had sent Marion to Dawes in charge of some of his men, having divined that he would come for her. But Taylor did not act upon the conviction instantly. He ran to the stable, stormed through it, and the other buildings in the cluster around the ranch house, and finding no trace of men or girl, he at last leaped on Spotted Tail and sent him thundering over the trail towards Dawes. When he arrived in town, a swaying, shouting, shooting mob jammed the streets. He brought his horse to a halt on the edge of the crowd that packed the street in front of the city hall, and demanded to know what was wrong. The man shouted at him, Hell's to pay. Carrington abducted Marion Harlan, and that little guy, Parsons, rescued her. And Parsons made a speech telling folks what Carrington and Danforth and all the rest of the sneaking coyotes have done, and were running the scum out of town. And then, before Taylor could ask about the girl, the man raised his voice to a shrill yell. It's Squint Taylor, boys. Squint Taylor. Stand back. Let old Squint take a hand in this here deal. There was a wild, concerted screech of joy. It rose like the shrieking of a gale. It broke against the buildings that fringed the street. It echoed and re-echoed with terrific resonance, back and forth over the heads of the men in the crowd. It penetrated into the cozy room of a private dwelling, 
where sat a girl who started at the sound and sat erect, her face paling, her eyes glowing with a light that made the motherly-looking woman say to her softly, "'And then you do believe in him, my dear?' It was when the noise and the tumult had subsided that Taylor went to her, for he had been told where he might find her by the men who smiled sympathetically at his back as he walked down the street toward the private dwelling. She was at the door as soon as he, for she had been watching from one of the front windows, and had seen him coming toward the house. And when the motherly-looking woman saw them in each other's arms, the moon and the light from within the house revealing them to her and to the men in the crowd who watched from the street, she smiled gently. What the two said to each other will never be known, for their words were drowned in the cheer that rose from hoarse-voiced men who knew that words are sometimes futile and unnecessary. End of chapter 34